Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with our body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, please do open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, and we will, Lord willing, finish this chapter this morning. We have been in a section in which Luke has been demonstrating the power and the authority of Jesus Christ over various realms of creation, and especially over those for which humans have absolutely no control. And all of that for the purpose, of course, of provoking within us faith in this one who does possess the power and authority. And that is what we will continue to see this morning. And there is much to cover. In fact, this passage could be broken into two sections. That is how I wanted to preach it. Um, But they really should be taken together just given the structure. And so we have quite a few verses to cover this morning, more verses than I am certainly used to covering. Uh, And so just by way of introduction, let me read the passage for you. Again, this is Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40, and we will read all the way through to the end of the chapter. Here's what Luke, this first century historian, records under the inspiration of the Spirit. He said, and as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus says, who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died, so do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, saying, Do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. And when he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he stopped or said, stop weeping for she has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. However, he took her by the hand and called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up immediately And he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. I have been saying throughout this chapter that every single one of us face three indomitable enemies. If you've been here any length of time, you know exactly what they are. They are the enemies of sin and Satan and death. We have seen... Jesus demonstrated his power and his authority over every single one of those, and this morning we're going to see him do it again, but especially over this final enemy of death. I think of all the fears and phobias and terrors, perhaps the greatest human dread is the inevitability of a person's own demise. Death is that great leveler. It is in the final analysis of all things, and especially eternity, what makes all men equal. 
Regardless of who you are, what you've achieved, it is the inescapable conclusion of every single life. It is a power that cannot be beaten. It is an enemy that cannot be outwitted. And it is a problem that is impossible for you to solve. And it is the unavoidable end of every person. Perhaps you caught the headline, I think it was this week, maybe it was last week, uh, regarding Jeff Bezos, the former CEO of Amazon. He recently declared that he would be bringing all the greatest minds in science and technology and medicine, of course, backed by his net worth of about $214 billion to try and figure out a way to live forever. He is now spending his days, ironically, by trying to figure out how to get more of them. And what he fails to understand is that death is not a mere physical problem to be solved. Rather, death, biblically speaking, is the consequence of a spiritual condition. It is, in fact, the just payment demanded by a holy and righteous judge for the sin and human rebellion committed against him. In fact, it is why I say all the time that the death rate is 100%. It is to say everyone always dies. It is because every person is born into sin, and the wages of sin is death. It is, make no mistake, God's just consequence against all injustice. And so Bezos' effort ultimately will prove to be nothing more than an exercise of futility But I would also say, having said that, that his desire is a proper desire. It is a legitimate desire to despise and hate and want to fight against that enemy of death. And because, if you understand the narrative of Scripture, it was never supposed to be this way. Death was never supposed to be our reality. And so the Bible declares that it is indeed our great enemy And so we come to a section this morning in which Luke, again, wants to show forth Christ's power over something for which we have no power. In fact, again, that is what he has been doing throughout chapter 8. He has been showing his power and authority over various realms of creation. We cannot control the wind and the waves. We cannot control the spiritual, specifically the demonic. And this morning, we're going to see that we certainly cannot control death, but Luke wants to declare that there is one who has power over these things. And so he will be showing that Christ has omnipotent authority over all things. He is building his case, effectively, that Jesus was far more than a mere worker of miracles. Rather, he has been showing that he possesses the very power and authority of God himself. He gives permission by his word, and all of creation, without exception, obeys him. We have been seeing that all of creation literally bows to his word. It yields to his authority. And so Luke has been systematically demonstrating that Jesus is the very fullness of God. And beyond that, as we've been making our way through this Perhaps you've been able to discern, but he has also been showing this very important theme that has been coursing throughout. There's been a very tight connection. It's sort of a sub-theme in this chapter, but there's a tight connection between these ideas of both fear and faith. Remember, in the stilling of the storm, the disciples panicked and were shown to be very weak in their faith. In the midst of that great trial, they had forgotten who Jesus was. They had forgotten the one whom they claimed to follow, and so it caused tremendous fear and panic in them. Last time we saw the overt rejection of Jesus by those Gadarenes because they were completely overcome with fear, and so they didn't forget who Jesus was. They just never knew who he was. And so at the demonstration of such power, they had no interest in him. They had no desire for him. They just wanted him gone And so this morning, we now come to a positive picture of what happens to a person when they come to Christ in fear, but still believing. In fact, there is often a connection between faith and fear, which is exactly why Luke is drawing that out for us. In fact, fear doesn't actually have to be at odds with faith. In fact, 
Fear often serves faith, and so God will use even our fears to drive us toward him. And so again, in the storm, Christ showed how the disciples feared, which, which led to a doubt in him. They thought he didn't care. They thought he just preferred to sleep and ignore them while they were assaulted with the chaos of life. And so they believed at some level, make no mistake, but that belief was impure. And so Jesus desiring to reveal those impurities and reveal the impurities of their faith to them and that they were not fully trusting in him, they he permitted an occasion to teach a very important lesson. In the story of Legion, we saw the people's fear didn't drive them toward Jesus, it drove them away from Jesus. Jesus demonstrated his power and his authority and even for their very own good, but the final conclusion for them was to remain in that fear and so they rejected him. And so here we'll see how fear can be a powerful tool that God will use to drive people toward him. It'll move us toward him because in the midst of that, we might understand him to be who he says he is. And so this is an account in which fear serves faith. That is the great lesson of this passage. There's a time in everyone's life in which they will experience a situation in which they have absolutely no control. We just heard about one. Perhaps you have found yourself in certain situations in which you have very little hope, you have very little power, you have absolutely no authority to control anything about your circumstance. And so in that moment, you will have a choice to make. Either you will throw your arms in the air and you will curl up in a state of fear as you are controlled by that over which you have no power, or you will view it as an occasion to run toward Christ. You will run toward him because you understand him to be who he says he is. You may not like the situation. You may have incredible fear in the midst of that situation, but does knowledge of his authority and knowledge of his sovereign control over every aspect of life, both big and small, drive you toward him? That is the question. Or will you run because you do not believe that he is who he says he is? That is the question that this passage seeks to provoke in us. And perhaps there is no greater occasion for fear because we have no true power over it than that reality of sickness and death. And so look with me, if you would, to this wonderful portrait of some desperate people who draw near in time of trial, but of course with tremendous faith. And so notice the scene, or as I'll title it, the setting in verses 40 through 42. This is the setting. Luke again writes, And as Jesus returned, the multitude welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, who was an official of the synagogue. And he fell at the feet of Jesus and began to entreat him to come to his house. For he had only one daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. Now, remember, after teaching the crowd the parable of the soils, Jesus hops into a boat on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. He starts crossing over to the area of the Gadarenes. They encounter that storm. When they get to the other side, he encounters legion, which is what we saw last time. And then in verse 37, Jesus gets back into a boat because they rejected him. And now he heads back toward Galilee. And so that is where the story now picks itself up. And so Jesus and his disciples here come back onto the land. Luke here states that the crowd or the multitude has been waiting for him. And remember, the crowd in the gospel of Luke always represents those neutral, uh, sort of half-hearted religious people who are following him only because he has something very temporary to offer. Things like bread, things like healing. They love the miracles because of what these miracles are producing for them. And so they are essentially religious consumers. They do not really care about his message. They are not concerned really at all with his claims. In fact, they are the very ones who will be yelling to crucify him at the very end of the gospel. But for now, as long as he keeps feeding them and healing them, they will seek him out. And so this is the multitude, this is the crowd. By the way, that is the very thing that gathers the religious crowds in our day. You put on a show, you claim to be a healer, you 
teach that God wants you happy, healthy, and wealthy, and you will garner a massive crowd. But teach the truth, refuse to skip over the hard sayings of Jesus, call people actually to follow Jesus as he has demanded that all true disciples follow him, and you will likely find your church much thinner. Teach in a way that promises to satisfy the fleshly desires of the person. Again, you will accumulate a large crowd, perhaps, but teach in a way that demands obedience, and you will generally have fewer. It'll be a faithful few, but it'll nevertheless be a few. This was Jesus' experience. Ultimately, this has been the experience of the faithful historic church throughout the millennia. And so Jesus here with his faithful few who have chosen to follow him because of his message Come back to shore to find this multitude who are following him merely because of his miracles. And so in verse 41, notice Luke begins with the word behold. Whenever you see that in the Gospels, you should think of this as a new scene. If someone is speaking and they say behold, it's sort of a call to listen up. And so if this was a movie, it'd be now snapping to a new scene. And so in verse 41, we are suddenly introduced to a man named Jairus. This is a man that we know nothing about. This is the first and the only time that we will see him in the Gospels. But what Luke tells us is that, notice, he was an official of the synagogue. And that is an important detail because this situation with this man is woven together with another situation that we're going to see involving this woman starting in verse 43, who Luke says has been bleeding for 12 years. And that is important because there is a very strong contrast being made between these two. In fact, we're going to see many contrasts this morning. In Jewish culture, you don't get much higher, socially speaking, than to be a ruler of a synagogue. They were often more influential than the rabbis who were the teachers. They were even more influential than the scribes and the Pharisees who were the lawyers and the purveyors of the religious system. But in terms of influence, The synagogue was the center of local Jewish life. And so if you were a ruler of one of these local synagogues, you had tremendous societal capital. And so you were respected, you were very wealthy typically, you were highly esteemed, and so there is an incredible contrast being made between these two particular figures in this passage. Notice one is a man and one is a woman, which that in and of itself, as you know, carried extreme significance in this day, socially speaking. To be a man was to be naturally respected, but to be a woman was to be necessarily inferior. One in this passage is rich and one is poor. Again, one is exalted and esteemed. The other is shamed and despised. One is respected and honored. The other is scorned and dishonored. One has a 12-year-old daughter. The other has a 12-year-old disease. One leads in authority over the synagogue, and the other, as we'll see, has been banned from the synagogue. And so what you have here, thematically speaking, are two extremes. These two are veritable opposites in just about every aspect of Jewish life. And so the contrast is important because what Luke is going to show is that the salvation of Jesus is something that is applied, hear this, totally indiscriminately. That is the point. It literally matters not at all where you may stand in this world, rather as we're going to see what matters, and the only thing that matters is who Jesus is and how you come to him with a certain kind of faith. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've accomplished, doesn't matter where you come from, matters not at all what kind of sin you were involved with, and it certainly doesn't matter what society or people think about you, rather what matters is your perspective and posture toward Jesus Christ. In fact, the gospel is not something that is even capable of discrimination. Gospel penetrates all cultures. It is relevant in every situation and at all times. Its power pierces every barrier. There is nothing socially, economically, religiously, philosophically that can somehow thwart or stall the purposes of God with his gospel. It can save all people at all times, regardless of race, regardless of history, regardless of skill, regardless of gender. It redeems any kind of sinner and every kind of sinner, and especially, as we're going to see, even the most vile of sinner. 
This is what the gospel is. This is what the gospel does. There is no condition. There is no prerequisite that must be met in order for its power to apply. For as Paul says, it is the power of God unto salvation, hear this, for all who believe. How much is all? And so here you have represented in these two people, this man and this woman, everything from the noblest to the most neglected. You have this man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, and you have an unnamed woman who has spent 12 years bleeding. And so first of all, this man, notice in verse 41, comes to Jesus and falls on his face. Luke says that he falls at Jesus' feet. Now again, there's a contrast here. Remember last time in verse 28, the demons also fall at Jesus' feet as they are possessing this man and because they are begging Jesus not to torment them. And then in verse 37, perhaps more important, remember the people of the Gerasenes are asking Jesus to depart from them. But here just a few verses later, this man also falls at Jesus' feet, but of course for the purpose of begging him to come to his house. And so again, Luke is setting up some contrasts. And the point to observe is that in all three of these cases, notice it is fear that determines the response. And the first two, fear wants to drive Jesus away. But in this case, fear has driven this man toward Jesus. He understands to some degree who Jesus is. He understands that he possesses the power and the authority to heal And so as Jesus is walking through the crowd, this man of tremendous nobility falls to the ground at Jesus' feet. And you have to understand the social ramifications of such a decision. Dignity does not fall to the ground. Dignity does not cast itself at another person's feet. This would have been outrageous. This would have been an unbelievable scene to this watching crowd They have never in their life seen a ruler of the synagogue get in the dirt. And so what's important to observe is that in order for a man of this standing to do such a thing, there has to be an incredible level of desperation within him. In fact, that is the point to understand. He is at a point of utter helplessness. In fact, remember, he is very wealthy, No doubt he has had the best doctors. He has had the most accomplished physicians come to him. He would have brought them from far and wide. And yet, despite all attempts and all temporal hopes and efforts, his daughter is still in the state of wasting away. And Luke is careful to include notice that it is his only daughter, which, of course, intensifies the emotion. She is very precious to him. In fact, she is now 12 years of age, which in Jewish society meant that she was at the very cusp of womanhood, which is why he includes the detail. Remember, Mary was but maybe 12 or 13 when she was engaged to Joseph and became pregnant with Jesus. And so in this day, 12 years old was a very significant age. She was about to enter the very prime of life. And so as you could imagine, this father then, like many of us, had all kinds of hopes and dreams. No doubt her wedding would have been one of the greatest in the region, just given this man's status. All would have come, all would have celebrated, and yet all is about to be dashed. She is, at this point, incurable. That is the critical point of this, pa- of this section. She is, again, at the very edge of death, totally out of his control. He has no authority at all to control this. And so understand that this is a situation of zero hope. Again, another circumstance in which we see a helpless, hopeless person, desperate. He is in fear of something beyond his control. And many of you have felt this. Perhaps you've experienced this in your life. There's been a loved one for which there is nothing that you can do. Doctors have no ability, this can't be solved, this is not something that can be fixed. It feels hopeless, it even feels wrong, perhaps even wicked that something like this should be happening. In fact, it feels almost unjust and sickening that someone should be taken from you. 
And yet, no matter how much you cry out for something to be done, there is absolutely nothing to be done. There is no controlling this. Sickness has progressed. This is beyond anybody's control. And that is the situation with this man. That is the setting. This man hears that Jesus has come ashore, and so now he hurries and charges his way through this pressing crowd, end of verse 42, to find his way to the healer. And time, understand, is not on his side. But he has heard of Jesus, and so he makes haste so that he might come and fall at his feet. In fact, that is his only option. All other options have been exhausted. And so in verse 43, the scene is suddenly interrupted by another event. Not only is Jairus trying to get to the healer, but so is somebody else. And as you can imagine, so were probably many other people. We see many verses in which it is recorded that people were bringing out their sick by the droves to be healed. And so in verses 43 through 48, notice Luke then narrows in on one of them. And this is what I will just call the helpless woman, verses 43 through 48. And so notice 43, he says, and a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him, touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Now, again, this is a very dynamic story. There are a lot of things happening. Notice the crowd is pressing in. This this man is creating his own dramatic scene by falling at the feet of Jesus. Again, he's a man of nobility and high standing. It'd be very bizarre to see this. And yet Jesus, moved with compassion, agrees to go to his house. And so as he is making his way to this man's house, of course, with his disciples with him, through this suffocating crowd, something else happens. Notice this woman touches his cloak. Now, understand as well that the impropriety of this scene just keeps sort of amping up. To see the ruler of a local synagogue falling down at the feet of a rabbi is is one thing, but for a woman of disease to be in public and then touching all these people, and especially a rabbi, that is a whole different issue. And so first of all, we don't know exactly what was wrong with her. Likely it was a uterine type of issue, could have been cancer, maybe something with her thyroid. We don't really know. It doesn't say. It's not really the point. But whatever it was, it was something crippling to her. This was a bleeding for 12 years. And so whatever it was, this was something that had turned her into a complete outcast. That is the point, again, to understand with her. This, this would have been something physically difficult for her, no doubt. You could imagine the physical effects of such a thing, the loss of blood alone. That would have been the loss of strength, the loss of energy. She would have been tired and weak constantly. She probably lived in a perpetual state as well of severe physical pain and always under the shadow of fearing her premature death. And Luke, remember, is a physician. And so as one man says on this, it's very interesting, he has to sort of protect the profession as he's writing. And so in verse 43, notice he says that she could not be healed by anyone. And so whatever it was, it was incurable. That is what that means there. But Mark, in Mark chapter 5 and verse 26, he says, and I quote, and she endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. Seems about right sometimes, does it not? Obviously, Mark was not a physician. And so she was in some pretty bad shape physically, but now also financially, She was a woman, which in this day meant she didn't have much by way of societal standing anyway, and perhaps worst of all was the fact that her disease, whatever it was, would have made her in this day a veritable outcast. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 15 and starting in verse 19, the law states that any woman who has an issue of blood flow is considered ceremonially unclean, which basically meant that she had to isolate herself by law so as not to defile anything that she may touch. A woman's 
regular monthly cycle was used by God to teach some very important lessons regarding holiness and purity for men. Of course, there were other ways that he taught them, but for women, it was the monthly flow of blood. And so if you had a constant flow of blood for 12 years straight, then your only reality would be one of complete and total isolation. In fact, the effect of that kind of situation meant that you could not go to the temple. You couldn't go to the synagogue. You couldn't offer sacrifice. You couldn't be with your husband. You couldn't be with your family. You couldn't touch your children. And so socially, you were utterly cut off. And then perhaps worse than even your social isolation, and because you didn't have access to the synagogue and you didn't have access to the temple, it meant essentially that you were cut off from God himself. This would have been a difficult situation in Jewish life. She was considered unclean, again, not literally, but ceremonially or ritually. And so the effects of this disease were holistically devastating. No aspect of her life was untouched by this. It's one thing to have to endure the physical effects of the sickness, but then to have to endure these social effects and spiritual effects on top of that, that would be virtually insurmountable. In fact, a pretty good description of the effects of sin, is it not? Which, by the way, will be the point. And so the net result was that she was isolated, lonely, cut off, cut off from her family, cut off from people, cut off from God. She had no more money, was spent to no end to receive absolutely no remediation. Money could not solve this. And so in a state of utter desperation, she plows through this crowd, which again would have been majorly unacceptable, touching all of these people and defiling everyone around her. In fact, to be touched by her would be to then make you ceremonially unclean. But she cuts through this crowd, just like the ruler of the synagogue, to gain access to the healer. Again, very different from the Gerasenes, who, not seeing what they truly were, could only reject Jesus. And so she comes within distance. Notice she reaches out from behind him, verse 44. She touches the fringe of his cloak, which essentially were these tassels, which, again, totally unacceptable. And immediately, her hemorrhage is healed. Flow of blood stops immediately. All pain, presumably, stops immediately. And from a physical standpoint, there is an immediate and holistic healing. And it's very interesting how this happens because in all of Jesus' healing so far, it's been an issue of his word. He is healed by the word of his power or as he gives permission by the authority of his word. And yet here, this woman is healed. Notice, presumably, it seems, without Jesus even knowing, she just comes up and touches him and somehow she is healed. And so in verse 45, notice all of that then brings everything here to an immediate stop. Jesus is traveling along. The crowd is becoming increasingly suffocating. In fact, the term there in verse 42, describing how the multitudes are pressing against him, that is the same word used to speak of the thorns which choke out the fruit in the beginning of chapter 8. And so in the midst of that commotion, Jesus here brings everything to a screeching halt. Notice he comes to a stop. He then asks here in verse 45, so who is the one who touched me? And so you could imagine the reaction of the people. They all start looking around. Luke says they all start denying it. You don't want to be the one who upsets this one with power. Peter then being Peter states what appears to be the opposite, uh, um, obvious. He Essentially, here thinks Jesus' question is ridiculous. Notice he states, Master, the multitudes are crowding and pressing upon you. So Peter is always good to say what everyone's thinking. That's why you got to love him. He is that apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. And so Jesus here responds in verse 45, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. Now, again, a lot of questions here on this. This is where the so-called faith healers and 
all the Word of Faith people and the charlatans like to talk about power and the idea of tapping into deity to gain access to the flow of power that's coming from Jesus. But all of that, of course, misses the point entirely. This is not about harnessing power. This is not about teaching the nature of energy or healing power, how to get it or pull from it or release it. Rather, as we're going to see, Jesus knew exactly what happened. He knew exactly who this woman was. In in fact, Mark tells us that he intentionally sets his gaze upon her. And so he was in utter control of this healing. And because the point here is that Jesus intends to make this a very public issue. He wants to accomplish something by drawing attention to this woman and for her benefit And so he is not asking the question because he is somehow ignorant, nor is he teaching that you can somehow pull the power from Jesus and harness it. Rather, he is asking the question in the midst of the pressing multitude because he desires to demonstrate something. In fact, notice verse 47 says, and when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, again, she could have just slipped away. She could have just touched him, and once she was healed, just sort of disappeared in the the sea of this multitude. And so Jesus poses the question, but that is not to say that he did not know who she was. In fact, evidently, she knew that he knew who she was. And so when she had not escaped notice, verse 47, she came trembling, fell down before him, and declared in the presence of all the people, again, he wants to do this very publicly. So she declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Again, the mark of one who's been genuinely and authentically transformed is not a cavalier sort of happy-go-lucky attitude, rather like this woman, which is consistent with everything that we have seen so far in the gospel. The natural response always to who Jesus is and what he has done is fear. Notice, she came trembling, literally a physical shaking from fear. That is the definition of the term, probably due to a mixture of not really knowing what happened, to being in somewhat disbelief as to what has happened, and also perhaps fearful that a person can actually possess such power. Again, just like we saw last time, there is a genuine fear that results when you experience authentic power. Again, this was... 12 years of an incurable disease reversed in a moment. And so she falls down before him and gives notice a public testimony of what Jesus has done. Again, you don't have to wonder ever if a person has truly and authentically and genuinely been transformed by the power and the mercy of Christ. There is such a confession, such a testimony to the world of Christ in their life. They cannot help but to publicly declare of what God has done for them. They are, in fact, compelled towards such things. Again, she could have just run away. But this strange mixture of fear and wonder and awe and gratitude drives her to testify to the watching crowd. There is no person who can just take their salvation and go home. Not if it's authentic. To be changed by Christ is to be one, again, who declares what he has done. Again, just like the demon-possessed man from last time, she couldn't help herself from publicly testifying to what has happened to her. And so how did this happen? Why did Jesus honor such an effort? Verse 48, he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. So go in peace, literally shalom, go in wholeness. Again, she was an utterly broken person. But Jesus made her whole again. He healed her, restored her. He saved and delivered her. Again, Just like last time, the word here for making her well, that is the Greek term sozo. It's the New Testament word for salvation. So she has been saved, saved from her disease, saved from her sickness, saved from 
her pain and consequences of the effects of this disease. And the point of Jesus posing the question so publicly, there's a reason for that. And it is so that he could restore her socially. She'd be restored fully in the eyes of this society. She'd now be ceremonially cleansed. She could, for the first time in 12 years, think about this, go to the temple. She could go to the synagogue. She could be with her family. She could be with her husband. Again, this is a holistic healing. No aspect of her life untouched by this deliverance. And perhaps the greatest gift given to her was that while she was essentially cut off from God, because again, she had zero access to the temple, she couldn't offer sacrifice, she had no access to the synagogue, perhaps the greatest gift here is seeing that God in Christ has come to her. She couldn't go to God in the temple, but Christ could come to her. And so he came to her, and by faith, made her well, totally saved, totally restored, delivered utterly from that which separated her from him. And again, why? Well, because of her faith. She knew that if she could just touch him, that perhaps even just her proximity to him could make her well. And so she was healed. Christ honored her heart. In fact, notice he calls her daughter, the only time in the Gospel of Luke that he calls anybody that. And so again, just a wonderful testimony here in the Scriptures of how salvation comes always by faith alone in the person of Christ alone. And so that is the hopeless woman. But then in verses 49 through 56, we see the helpless girl This is the helpless girl. If you have ever been to a third world country and you enter into a village, you understand a little bit the scene here. Streets are typically very narrow. They become extremely crowded. Again, it's the term here for being choked out. And so you can imagine the scene. This man named Jairus finally makes his way through all of these people. And remember, and this is what's critical, time is not on his side. No doubt he wants to be with his only daughter in her final moments, but instead he chooses to leave her side. And why? Well, because he has heard that the healer has come to town. And so in a last-ditch effort, he leaves his daughter for perhaps the very last time that he'll see her alive. He's taking a very great risk. Finally makes his way to Jesus. He falls at his feet long before this woman ever shows up. Jesus actually agrees to come to his house. And so you could imagine for the first time in a very long time, this man is energized with a little bit of hope. He has heard of what Jesus is capable of. The rumors are far and wide regarding him. The testimony of his healing is everywhere. He is all that anybody is talking about. In fact, the entire region of Galilee is buzzing with what Jesus is doing. And so despite all the commotion and all the hype and hysteria surrounding this man and knowing that he'll probably not even have the slightest opportunity to even talk with him because so many people are trying to talk with him. Again, the crowds are crushing. Not only does he get to speak with him and tell him his story, but Jesus actually agrees then to go to his house. In fact, there are many who would bring their sick all the time to Jesus, but the critical condition of this man's daughter would not allow that. And so he would need Jesus to come to him, come to his house. And so as Jesus begins to make his way to the house, and again, where time is of critical essence, this woman of 12 years bleeding brings us to a halt And so how frustrating, right? If you were this man, it's been 12 years, you couldn't wait another hour. Furthermore, if you think about it, all she had to do was just touch him and she was healed. Was it really necessary for Jesus to stop and slow the process? I mean, he knows time is of essence for this man. And so if you were this father, how disheartening. How disheartening as you stand there anxious while Jesus apparently is trying to figure out in a crowd who touched him. 
And so in verse 49, as he stands waiting, his worst fear comes true. Notice Luke says, and while he was speaking, meaning Jesus, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. So do not trouble the teacher anymore. In other words, this delay proves to be deadly. Jesus postpones going to the house. He postpones the more urgent request here for something that is, relatively speaking, far less urgent. And by the way, I do think that there is an important lesson in that. We sometimes think we can't go to God because whatever we're dealing with is, in our minds, perhaps less urgent or important, feels trivial, feels less important than maybe what we think we should be going to Jesus for. But the truth is, is that God is interruptible. If this was you or me, we'd probably make haste to go and get to this girl. We couldn't be bothered. Again, time is of critical essence, but not so with God. Truth is that we can go to him. He will help us. He will always address our need. He's not too busy running the universe to take compassion on what seems at times to be relatively small. In fact, remember, he even calls his woman daughter. She is rewarded immensely for coming to him and interrupting him in faith. But in taking the time, this delay becomes deadly. And so notice how quick Jesus is to respond. He says here immediately, verse 50, But when Jesus heard this, he answered him saying, do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. Again, the term sozo. And notice again the connection here between faith and salvation. And what I want you to notice here about this conjunction translated in verse 50 with the word and, notice He is not saying believe for she shall be saved as if healing this girl was somehow dependent upon the faith of the father. Rather, he is saying believe. And why? Well, because she is going to be made well. In other words, take heart. Believe me. Trust me. Have faith that I am capable of even this. Again, the power of salvation is bound up in the person of Christ alone. He is not dependent upon your faith or upon your belief to make anything happen. Rather, he alone makes things happen. Power is in him. Salvation is in him. In fact, even your ability to believe is nothing but a gift. So he does not need faith to act. Rather, faith or trust is simply an act of worship. It is an act of worship at the recognition of who he is and what he has done and what he will do. It is always here, this trust in a particular promise that he will act because he has promised to act. And so he tells this man to believe because he is going to do something. Do not fear, only believe. And so they go to the house in verse 51. Notice Luke writes, and when he had come to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now, this is interesting because where the healing of the hemorrhaging woman is intended to be very public, the raising of a dead person, which seems to be a much greater miracle, he intends to make private. Notice he allows only Peter, James, and John, those those inner three of the 12, so not even all of the disciples get to go in and witness this. Certainly the crowd doesn't get to go in. And so in verse 52, notice Luke states that they were all weeping and lamenting for her. Matthew and Mark and their accounts fill it out to show that that is actually speaking of the professional mourners. That is not a reference to the father or mother. In fact, in chapter 5 and verse 38 of Matthew, he says of this scene, and when they came to the house of the synagogue official and he beheld a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing, he said to them, why make a commotion 
and weep. And so again, that is talking about the professional whalers who remember in this culture are actually hired to weep and to wail and to make a very great commotion in our culture. It's very quiet and subdued, but in Jewish culture, the louder, the better. And so word has gotten out. The, these mourners have already showed up and they are creating a very public scene to indicate to the rest of this village that death has visited this home. And so in verse 52, Jesus then commands, notice, to stop weeping. And why? Well, for she has not died, but is asleep. To which, of course, they respond, notice, with laughter. And because they know that she has died, as it says in verse 53, by the way, that is the only time in the gospel in which laughter is ever recorded. And it's important to note that it is a mocking laughter, and so they laugh and mock because they think that they know something. They think that they know better. And so even there, there's a contrast between these who have faith and these who think that they have knowledge. And she is truly dead because notice in verse 55, it says that her spirit returns to her. And so what they do know is true. But the problem is that what they know is utterly insufficient. They might know the state of this girl, but they do not have knowledge of Christ. And so they laugh and mock because they think that they know better. The hemorrhaging woman and the father fall on their face in fear and humility, but these who think that they know something simply mock and laugh. Verse 54, however, so... Again, a contrast, on the contrary, he took her by faith, or her hand, and called, saying, child, arise. So the woman is called daughter. The girl here is called child. Again, affectionate, familial language. Notice he speaks an authoritative word over her. Again, the power is bound up in his word alone. And so with a simple command, verse 55, her spirit returned, she arose immediately, and he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. And so what is the response? Well, her parents are understandably amazed. It, it, it's the term existe me, literally to stand outside of. Literally, they were put out of their minds. You could translate it as their minds were blown. And so this is an unbelievable demonstration of power. This is mind-blowing power. This is an act that makes literally no sense. This is utterly miraculous. And so end of verse 56, he then instructs them to tell no one what had happened. Somewhat challenging to understand why Jesus commanded this, but most likely it's because he's already in a state, remember, of judging the people. Remember, he will no longer teach the Jews in plain words, but he will only speak to them in parables, but why? For the purpose of hiding and concealing truth. We saw that in verse 10. That is the purpose of parables. In fact, this again stands in contrast to what he told the demon-possessed man by legion. Remember, Jesus told him to go and tell all the people what had happened to him, but who is he to tell? He's to tell Gentiles. But here back in Israel, he tells them to proclaim this to no one. You've got mockers in the street. You've now got crowds who follow him only because of what he has to offer in a very temporary way. And so while outside the streets are filled with laughter and mocking and consumerism, the inside of the home is filled with faith, fear, blessing, and awe. And so very dynamic and dramatic and contrasting story. A lot, of hap a lot happening here, a lot of movement, a lot of commotion, a lot of fear mixed with faith. There's different kinds of people, different needs, different burdens, different struggles. But what's beautiful about the account, I think, is that Jesus here is described as being intimately aware of every single one of them. You see here his compassion. You see his interruptibility. You see his willingness and even desire to heal. You see his desire to meet the needs of these who have faith. You see his unwillingness to give even a shred of evidence to those who will only mock. And again, because they think they know something. 
yet you see his care for those who come in desperation. This is a picture of our Lord. This is a description of what he is like. You want to know what God's like? You want to know what the creator of all things is like? You want to know his character and his priorities? Well, you see it here in the exact image of him, which is his son. He is not too busy for those who genuinely seek him. He will not busy himself with neutral, half-hearted, vague, religious people, but he will always attune his attention to the hopeless. To those who understand their place of desperation and have come to understand their need of him, Again, he has not come for the righteous, that is the self-righteous. Rather, he has come for the sinner. He has come for the one who requires mercy and grace, not the one who somehow thinks God owes them. So what is this? What is the message of this passage? Well, again, we have spent three weeks seeing three different accounts. We saw Jesus calm the storm. We saw him deliver the man possessed by legion. And here we see him deal with the issues of disease and death. In fact, technically, you take, could take all three of these accounts and just preach them as one unit because they're all driving toward the same point. I think that would kill me. But the most important point to understand, again, is to understand who exactly Jesus is. That is what this passage and these passages declare. You cannot walk away from these sections concluding that Jesus was just a good teacher or merely a rabbi of notable following. You cannot conclude that he was simply a prophet who worked only in the power of God. Rather, you have to conclude that either Jesus was not real because this is just fiction, or you have to conclude that he is indeed the fullness of God. But those are your only options. And so if you accept the gospel of Luke as inspired history, where Luke This ancient historian is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. The meaning of this passage is very clear. This is a section revealing the utter lordship of Christ over everything. That is what this is about. You see his lordship over physical creation. You see his lordship over spiritual creation. And today you see his lordship over that which seeks to uncreate namely disease and death. And so there is no aspect in all of creation, both seen or unseen, large or small, spiritual or physical, over which Jesus Christ does not have omnipotent authority. That is the demonstrable issue of this section And so if you walk away with nothing else, at least walk away understanding exactly who the scriptures declare Jesus to be. But second of all, at a more personal level, this is demonstrating the critical connection between faith and fear. That is the sub-theme of this section. First passage, again, you saw that fear drives the disciples to doubt in the person of Christ. Remember, they still had belief, but their fear drove them to experience doubt. In the second passage, you saw fear drive the people to altogether reject the person of Christ. They had no belief to begin with, but then once Jesus is revealed to them and shown to be who he is, they reject him. And then in this passage, you see that fear drives these two people toward the person of Christ. These are two figures in Scripture who model perfectly what fear ought to cause you to do. Whenever you fear, the only appropriate response always is to run toward him. When you find yourself in an utterly uncontrollable situation, you realize you have no power and you have no authority and you have no ability at all to solve that which is unsolvable, the best thing that you could ever do is simply cast yourself at the feet of Jesus. It is to fall before him, as these two did, verses 41 and 47. 
And that is not a promise, beloved, that he will necessarily fix your circumstance. Understand that well, but it is a promise that he is sufficient. Hear that he is sufficient always to give you what you need. In fact, people do all kinds of things with the Gospels, and mostly because they're not certain how to interpret them. But what you should understand is that every passage in the Gospels deal ultimately with the issue of salvation. That is what this is about. These are historical events, again, recorded by Luke the historian under the inspiration of the Spirit, and they are physical events designed to convey, hear this, they are designed to convey a much more important spiritual reality. And so again, I tell you, this is not about miracles. The fraudulent faith healers love passages like this. This is not about unleashing God's power in your life. This is not about having a greater faith to somehow harness his authority. This is not about health, wealth, and prosperity and how Jesus can meet all of your felt needs. Rather, these are pictures of who Christ is and how, therefore, he is totally sufficient to save you. Again, the word that we've been seeing in all three of these accounts, it's the word sozo. It's the idea of deliverance, always the idea of being delivered from final destruction. And that is not to say that you can't go to him for something temporary. In fact, we're commanded all over the place to do that. But this is about something far more eternal. This is about the state of the soul. This is about a final deliverance of the soul. Many people try many different things, hoping that in the end, God is going to somehow let them into heaven. But the only question that you have to answer is whether or not you believe that Christ is sufficient. And so if you have understood these accounts, and you have rightly understood the testimony of Luke to you throughout, these, or throughout this chapter, then the only question that remains is, do you yet trust him? Do you trust Jesus to be who he said he was? That is the question. And so in the face of fear, especially in the face of that great enemy of death, the call of this passage is to use that fear, and hear me well, it is to use that fear to run to him. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15 writer states, since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself, meaning Jesus, likewise also partook of the same. He became a man. That through death, his death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The reason ultimately someone like Jeff Bezos is spending billions to solve the problem of death is because he fears it. Or at the very least, he fears the effects of it. He is aware that in death, he loses something, which is why he's fighting But he does not understand what it is. He does not understand why it is. And so in light of his ever-approaching demise, he can only fear. He is subject to its slavery. But Christians are strange people, are we not? We're strange people in that while we grieve loss and we grieve the effects of sin and death, we do not grieve as the world grieves. We grieve as ones who have hope. We grieve as ones who follow a resurrected Messiah. We grieve as ones who know that death is only gain. And so whether you're talking about death or you're talking about anything else that might cause you to fear, it is the one who rightly understands who Jesus is that takes that fear but then lets it drive him toward faith. That is the place of fear in the life of the Christian Again, it is not wrong to fear, beloved, but it's what you do with that fear that matters. 
Jesus does not rebuke Jairus for fearing. Rather, he says, just use it as an occasion to believe. Take that fear, turn it into belief. So again, what about you? Who do you understand Jesus to be? Do you see him as the great healer, the great physician of the soul? Or do you think that you still somehow know better? That is the question that this text confronts us with. Who do you understand him to be? Will you trust him? And if not, will you even this morning run to him? Let's pray. And so, Father, my hope and my prayers as always, that this word which you've given us this morning in your wisdom and in your providence would not leave us unreflective. I pray that it might cause us by the power of your spirit to better understand the depths of your love for the lost, that we might understand in a fuller way your compassion and your grace toward the sinner. You knew that there was nothing that we can do, and so you knew that you had to do it for us. And the sending forth of your son to heal that which is otherwise hopeless. I pray for all here this morning that they might see a little bit more the beauty of your gospel, that you did send forth your son to take on flesh, take on the weakness of what it means to be a man, but so that you might enter this world and rescue us from that which has separated us from you. In Jesus' name, amen.